24 hours a day, 365 days a year. MI5's English language analysts listen to lawfully intercepted conversations, picking out essential information that will help us counter terrorism across the UK. They're the kind of people who don't miss a thing, who can listen for hours on end without losing concentration, who can pick out the important information and stay calm under pressure. They work well on their own and even better when they're briefing the team on what they've discovered. If this sounds like you, visit the MI5 website to find out more and apply. The Guardian. This is my little netbook. That's actually one of our local MPs. That's an MP. (laughs) This is David. He's blind and has Usher's syndrome, which means he wears two powerful hearing aids. He also has diabetes and asthma. His sight began degenerating when he was in his 20s. The reason it's going so fast is because I want to be as productive as uh, someone who's sighted reading. So I want to be independent because normally it takes people a long time to read things out with their mouths. I mean, you can read with your, you can read with your eyes a lot quicker than I can. This weekend, thousands of disabled people will take to the streets as part of the hardest hit campaign. They say that as the coalition attempts to save billions from the living allowance bill, they'll be the ones hardest hit. I'm Hugh Muir, and in this week's Focus podcast, we'll be taking a look at these planned changes to disability benefits. Is this a sensible plan to get the finances under control, or an attack on the most vulnerable? I do my shopping online on there, so that, and the reason I do that is because I'm a menace in a shop. I would knock things over because I can't see and I can't hear that well for when people are trying to guide me. David gets the disability um, living so allowance and it pays for him to have help with his computer. I, I use emails, it makes I, a world I of difference. Letters on there. I, I read my newspapers, so it, I, for example, I read The Guardian on here. So it, 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 it's an enormous source of help for me. Now you're obviously trying to live your life as independently as you can. I do. Uh, why are the, the proposed changes so worrying to you? But they're worrying to me because, they. first of all, I will lose money. Um, I'm going to lose the lower rate. If I get, at the moment, I get the lower rate care of um, DLA payment, and that will simply go in the new rules. So I'm going to lose, I think it's something like £20 a week. It's a big drop in income. Why? What would you do with that money? Well, it, 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 as, as I was saying, I, I need it to get help. You know, looking at the some of the issues that have been around just today, for example, um, the reason I can't properly demonstrate this netbook to you is we haven't got the internet running. When uh, I ring Virgin up to say, well, I've got a problem with my internet, they say, well, is the light going on the modem? Or is this, Is you know, can you click so-and-so on a, a piece of software that's uh, inaccessible? They, they, you basically need sight to respond to the questions that they Oh, so what I have to do generally is employ an engineer to come round and he'll do it for about £25, but he'll ring Virgin for me and uh, sort those particular problems out. And you need help in going out? I need help in going out as well. I mean, if I went to a meeting on Monday, for example, not that far away, I could easily walk it physically, but um, because I couldn't see my way and wouldn't know how to find my way there, uh, and I needed guiding, I had to pay, uh, well, I think it's £12 in taxi fares. And again, if I didn't have the disability, I would just be able to walk there. It's really no distance, it's just in Leighton, but it, you have to pay for those extra costs. So every week there, that's the thing that you have to have to pay for. So what do you think is going on here? Because the government would say quite clearly what we're trying to do is clamp down on waste, on excessive expenditure, on people who claim who shouldn't be able to claim 
But presumably you would say, but I'm not really in that category. I'm claiming for things that I really need. I think the government, to a certain extent, are misguided. They're misinformed. And the particular thing I'm really, really worried about is this idea that people who help themselves through aids and adaptation will be penalised under the new system. Uh, I think it's because we don't have a very clear voice. Um, we're not the most visible people in the media. You know, we're not the most visible people uh, to protest. Take myself, if you hadn't come round here, for example, to interview me, I probably, my voice wouldn't be heard on this issue. So I think part of it is about our voice, and we're an easy target. So, Benji, what are you going to do today? Book. You want a book? Mm. Right. Um, let's see if we can get you a book. Well, very moving spending time with David. He's good company, determined, completely uncomplaining about his condition. But as you've heard, he's very worried. And so is Janet Solomons. Her son Benji is 38 and has severe learning difficulties. He's unable to talk and needs to be pushed around in a wheelchair. Benjamin, I haven't got another book. Can we get one later? Is that all right? He's dependent for his 24-hour care on somebody else. He receives this around the clock at a residential home in Finchley. There's no danger that Benji will lose all support. His condition is too acute for that. But the disability living allowance is what gives him an acceptable quality of life. It pays for transport costs to get him away from his chair at the residential home. Yes? So if he's here, I'm not getting out of the house. What you're seeing now is what would need to happen the whole time that he's here. And he would get very annoyed. I haven't got another book, I don't think. Shall I see if I can find one here? Oh, wait a minute. Here's something that looks a bit like a book. They're a bit worn. But just, you can imagine yourself that if you're sitting um, and there's nothing engaging you, all sorts of things arise. Of course, there's a difference between an existence and a life. What are you able to do for him to give him a life? Indeed, that's an extremely important point um, because historically that was not a view that was taken and it's not that long ago that people didn't consider that somebody like Benjamin was entitled to a life. Thank goodness that has changed now and that we expect that Benji will have a life that will be as near as possible to the sort of life that you and I would enjoy, that we'd want to meet people. He enjoys meeting people. Um, He would want to go out. He would want to see what's out in the outside world. He would want to have the influence of an external environment. And how much of a difference does that make for him? Having that life, an enormous difference. Um, For example, he goes to something called a Monday club, which is, as it happens, at a local synagogue. And every Monday evening they have a a social club um, with activities for uh, people with learning disabilities. And he absolutely loves it. And I get feedback from a friend who's working there and said that it's incredible, you know, the transformation, that people get involved in something like that. And they're engaged in a way that wouldn't otherwise happen. Right, now you want to stroke more. Right, Okay. How much is the help from government instrumental in giving him that life as opposed to the existence ah that's again it's absolutely 150 percent essential um if government withdrew funding all the sorts of normal life activities would not be able to take place now i described to you earlier my memory of life in a long stay hospital which not that many years ago would have been the fate of somebody like benjamin that people went in, more or less at birth in fact, and they spent their entire lives in these large long-stay hospitals, which were indescribably awful. I mean, there's 
probably no other way to describe it. Now, that has changed a lot since then, but I think the fear of many people now is that if you withdraw funding from all the activities that are currently funded, you would revert to those days. Now, they may, that may sound a little overdramatic, and we hope sincerely that that would never get to that stage. But, of course, it's not impossible. I'm moving through to another room now. It's a lot of people being cared for here. And in this room is uh, Alan, who's the assistant uh, manager here, and he's with Peter, um, a resident who's in a wheelchair. And Alan's giving his breakfast, Weetabix and banana. What sort of things are people saying to you? Well, people are worried about, well, for example, the, the level of care that people are getting at the moment. I think a lot of us are very concerned that that's going to go down, you know, that the level of care that we're able to provide now, we're just kind of worried that that's not going to happen in the future, you know, because obviously the main, the main thing we're concerned about is, is keeping up the sort of level of care that we have at the moment. And we really don't want to see a drop in standards. And if those standards do drop, that will have a dramatic effect on, on the quality of life. That totally, people yeah, completely. You know, I mean, if, if things are cut for things like, for example, activities and budgets for those type of things, then it's going to be just going to make things very, very difficult. Because you know? obviously we try and get people out and about as much as we can. The, the whole idea is supposed to be about cutting waste and cutting abuse. Do, do you see much waste or abuse? I mean, it's certainly not apparent from, from what you do here. I don't abuse at all, whatsoever. And certainly... And these are not rich services, aren't they? No, no waste at all. And joining me in the studio now is our social affairs editor, Randy Ramesh, and Neil Coyle, director of policy at the Disability Alliance. And I should say that in light of concerns raised by David and Janet earlier, uh, and those that will doubtless be raised by thousands of people at protests all over the country at the weekend, we asked for someone from the Department of Work and Pensions to join us. They felt unable to do that. We asked the MP Brandon Lewis, a member of the Work and Pensions Select Committee, who's applauded the government's move away from the disability living allowance on the basis that too much of the money goes to undeserving types, including drug addicts. Uh, he also declined to uh, be with us today. Uh, the department suggested we ask the press group the Taxpayers Alliance, and so we did. And I'm glad to say that we have the Alliance Director, Matthew Sinclair, with us too. So, welcome to all of you. And uh, Matthew, I, I will start with you. I mean, a bit bizarre the DWP sending us to you. Do you get many referrals from them? Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't know that, that was that was that was the strategy. I just assumed that at some point enough people have said no, and a journalist comes and asks us. Well, they may uh, they may ask you for the ten percent of the of the of the negligible fee. But anyway, <laughs> um, start with you. Money's tight. We all know that, sure. um, and so obviously the government wants to look at everything again. But when you're looking at benefits that you pay to disabled people, that that's a really tricky area to move into, isn't it? Sure. Which is why they've had, by the standards of most of government spending. Uh, they've been very careful about uh, disability spending. If you look at the kind of settlements most of spending's getting, it's going down at around 1% of GDP, GDP uh, in real terms. What's happening some services, like science, which are felt to be very important, are getting a cash freeze. And this is one of the few areas where you're getting a real terms freeze in spending, which is roughly the kind of treatment health is. Uh, at the end of the spending review period, uh, spending will be very slightly up in real terms on what it was in the last financial year. So essentially the decision has been made that what what's affordable now is arresting the, co the, the rise in the cost of this benefit. Now that doesn't mean that'll be easy, 
But to, but we should be clear that this this isn't a benefit which has seen particularly sharp treatment relative to other areas of uh, public spending, and indeed, of course, taxes, which are going up. And Neil, uh, Matthew's a reasonable guy. That sounds very reasonable. Um, what's what's wrong with that? I think that the <clears throat> the I, the idea that this has been a well thought through approach to uh, reform is is uh, mistaken. The the way the government have approached this shows very little understanding of the people who are most likely to be affected. Uh, the suggestion that you can have the same level of expenditure year on year ignores the fact that costs of living go up and disability living allowance was introduced under the last Conservative government to help disabled people cover the higher cost of living. Um, we've seen what the inflation rate is. To suggest that disabled people can manage on the same despite rising costs is to ignore uh, the reality. Sorry, and sorry, also, important to clarify this. We're talking about real terms spending is a rising cost. It's going to rise, therefore, at, with inflation. Those are in 2011-12 prices. So those costs which are going up, costs like energy bills, will drive up inflation, and the benefit is expected to rise with that. We are talking about a real-terms freeze. We're just stopping above-inflation increases in the cost of the benefit. And we'll let, I'm going to quickly bring Randy in, in here. Um, are those savings to be made? The problem here is, leave aside the inflation argument, the government... The government wants to save money um, by introducing uh, a, a test, basically, because they argue that it's an automatic right to this benefit and we need to test people to make sure that the right people are getting it. Now, that, that seems to be OK. However, experience of um, the working cap- work capability assessment, which is basically what this test is, is based on, has been pretty bad, um, even by the department's own standards. They've, they've, they've admitted that. Now, really, you're then left with, can you really do it? I mean, are there really that many people... 20% that don't get this benefit who should. Now, the main driver for growth um, has been old age, to be honest. It's what you call disability-free life expectancy. And I'm afraid as, as the ageing population, it's nothing to do with inflation, actually. It's the age profile. And the, the department's actually admitted that their own original estimates were wrong. They were, they were out by, by double. They, they estimated that 30% could be locked off. In fact, they then revised the figure down to 16. I believe that's going to go down again. So they are going to find it pretty difficult, just on a policy level, to deliver those kind of savings. And if you talk to the people who actually do the numbers, talk to Bristol University's um, you know, uh, policy unit, they'll tell you that the working capability assessment has managed 10% at best in its current format with the, with the benefits that it's been going through. So it's a pretty hard sell from the government to, to be able to achieve the policy objective here. So are you suspicious of the figures now? Absolutely, and I'm glad uh, Randy made the point about that part of the government's justification is growth of DLA use, and of course it was a new benefit in issues in 92. Um, the government's the Department of Work and Pensions research now shows that working age growth, the bit that's being cut by 20%, was actually 13%, not 30%, when you take out the children, the figure as well. And of course, because of medical advances, uh, more children, more disabled children are surviving into adulthood. Uh, Randy's right that a lot of the people who've, uh, who've started claiming DLA and working age are carrying it over into older age people are living longer so again it's not even if you just look at what what is spent now to suggest that you can take people out without any impact on or you know on to say people's uh, equality of opportunity without any impact on the nhs without any impact on residential care is mistaken it also freezes the picture now and prevents future disabled people accessing support which adds further costs to the nhs to councils and of course prevents carers uh, from continuing to work. There'll be carers and carers are approaching us, approaching Carers UK and other disability charities to say, 
if these proposals go forward as they stand, we will be forced to take on more caring responsibilities. We will be less able to continue to work. We, we will become more, more reliant on the NHS, more reliant on councils. And this sort of cost-benefit analysis of what is given now and what, what is needed in the future is being completely ignored by the Department for Work and Pensions. Matthew, have you seen enough of the figures to be happy that they are robust figures? Because if the figures are dodgy, then the government are on very shaky ground right at the outset. Well, I mean, I think the whole point is those figures aren't settled. You're looking at this uh, a policy process which is ongoing if you look at all the documents around things like the impact assessment they all say you know we, we we do understand that as this is this is refined the amount of spending may change and all that we have at the moment is i think a quite sensible decision that that, that these benefits should be um, reviewed regularly instead of sort of being left indefinitely that they should be uh, based on a more objective test as regards to impairments rather than simply condition. And that seems like a sensible change. And I think that, yes, there are long-term changes which may drive up uh, healthcare costs, and that's why there are there are all sorts of fiscal challenges we'll face out to 2030, 2040, and there are very powerful studies on that. And it's going to have to change what the state can afford to finance. It's a very, very important issue. However, at the moment, what we're talking about, the kind of things we're right here, we're talking about uh, you know, the spending review out to 2014, 15, 2015, 16, uh, and sitting at that, at that stage, it freezes in real terms, only increases with inflation. Now, the idea that these long-term pressures are going to lead to drastic changes in the, in, in the, the, in the number of people who need this benefit over that period seems unrealistic. But don't you send that signal when you say to people, this is the amount that we want to claw back? So it's not as if you're reviewing all the cases and then seeing how much is there to be saved. You're saying this is no, what we're I mean, seeking the, to the, say. The extent of what the extent of what what that objective is of what they want to call back is that they want to arrest the 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 the, the, the pre, pretty significant rise in the cost of cost of this benefit, and I think that that's a pretty reasonable objective I think, right I think now. It's really important to come in there. I mean, we, we've already talked about the the government's basis for suggesting the growth was as high as it was has been undermined by its own Department for Work and Pensions research. And and and, and you're right. The, the the suggestion that you can start a process of legitimate reform to better support save people, which is what the government is claiming it's trying to do, you can't start that discussion by saying, and the outcome will be a twenty percent reduction in the resources available to disabled people and you can't start the discussion without considering can't take those decisions without taking into account knock-on effects to carers knock-on effect to the nhs knock-on effect to councils and it seems uh quite quite it seems quite quite it seems quite uh, a difficult position to be in to suggest to disabled people that the low rate care bit of disability allowance will be scrapped which reaches 652,000 people and pays about $660 million a year in total, we're going to take away all, all of that support and it, by introducing a new assessment that costs £675 million. At a time we're told there is not the resources to su- support disabled people, we're finding resources to go through assessments for someone who's deafblind, for example, whose condition won't change, who will be forced to re-attend face-to-face medical assessments to prove they're still deafblind. So it's which, is why, which is why this, this the policy is still being run. There may be some people who, where there's no sense, reassessing 
missing them. But for large chunks of the of, of this benefit, for many disabilities, which abilities where the extent of impairment will change over time, it's right that that's properly assessed. And at the same time, I think you, it, there's this massive overstatement of the degree of the um, of the degree to which these objectives were were set down in stone before the process of consultation, before the process of refining this policy got underway. The all that that was, and I think it's sh- this should have been, and it's right that this was one of the initial considerations in the benefit, is that it just does, does need to be affordable. Because we can all come up with an, a never-ending list of, of objects of people who could use more resources, but there are pressures throughout the public sector, throughout the economy. And reflecting that, whatever the final outcome of this process of reform is, it needs to be affordable. I think is entirely legitimate, and I don't think any of. I think that the fact that things have changed in the policy, have changed in the assessment as it's gone on, I think you guys should view as positive. I mean, would you rather that the department wasn't doing this, much, wasn't refining its figures, was sort of sticking to to these things, come what may? It's it's um, good. But you can only do that so so. You can only do that to a certain extent. At, um, before undermining the original case for, for, for going down that road in the first place. I, I do hear what you're saying. I don't think there's anybody that sort of says, realistically, we can never review policy and policy shouldn't move. I mean, otherwise, we, you know, we'd be dealing with the welfare state that we found it rather than the one we have today. But I think the problem has been a lot around where the government appears to be coming from. Now, I'm afraid that is a feeling, but feelings become words, and that has been the problem for the government in that they have set themselves a very high standard of, of savings from, I mean, I think you can you can say a lot about the poor that their condition is of their own making, but really to accuse the disabled is a difficult one, and to and to look for that level of saving that can only really be explained away by fraud, is is too high. I mean, even when no, they sorry, first fraud. It's not, it's, but it's not just fraud. One of the key objectives they're setting out there is uh, is in, is, in, is getting people into work. If you look at the analysis set out in the consultational document, a lot of that is based around uh, an understanding that not that disabled people have in some way failed or disabled people have in some way not done what they should, but that the benefit hasn't done what it done, done what it should for them. And the I think I don't so I don't think that the that there's there's anything wrong with with that approach. And I just think that yes, people are very concerned and concerned, but I don't think that's just the government. Fault. I think there's also been a lot of very unfortunate rhetoric implying that the initial spending constraint was much stronger than it was. I, I had to try and, the amount of workers who try and convince people that in real terms this spending isn't, this isn't being cut that the overall spending on this benefit isn't being slashed. Because that's the perception people have. I mean, we have people doing consultations, the Disability Alliance have, on what would you do if there was no disability living allowance? And that's not, that's not but actually... No, 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 I think it's really important that we come in on that because that's not anything Disability Alliance have said. What we did ask in a consultation that used the government's questions as well as some of our own, we asked if you were not to receive DLA or not to receive it to the same level, what might the impact be on you? Is that and, an and unreasonable I, question? No, well, because... I mean, I've seen how these things were presented. They were presenting it yeah, as you know, X percent of people say that if there was no, if they, if, they, if there was no disability living allowance, they'd be, they'd be in trouble. I mean, it's, it is, I just think we've got to be really careful about the language here. Or we wonder on both situation the NUS has been on be, both sides, though, because I mean, there is a credibility issue here, in that when people have read discussion about this story, it's not necessarily been about you know how many people can we get back to work. A lot of it has been about there is fraud. We <coughs> must we must squeeze out the fraud. Um, a lot of it in pretty if you, lurid stuff. If as you, well. If you do look on, if you type disability living allowance into Google or just Google News, the stories are almost always about benefit fraud. And I have to say, 
there are ministers have been pulled up for briefings that they've given selectively to journalists and papers who who they trust uh, from DWP, and they don't. They certainly don't come to me. Um, uh, I've complained about it. Trust me. Mm-hmm. Um, so. It's not that we don't know that that's the atmosphere they wish to create. And I, I can see exactly that, of course, as taxpayers, we all, and disabled people are taxpayers as well, we all look for efficiency from our government services. There's nothing wrong with that. But to start from a point where you do look for a billion out of five billion, because the drivers for growth are not inflation in this, this context. They're really about the ageing of the population and, and the attendant medical effects. That's a difficult one to sell on the basis of a work capability assessment. Although I do take your point. I do think that anyone who says that working is not better for you than not working, I mean, that's a sort of fool's paradise. If it is possible that you can work, really, everyone would like to have a job. I don't think there are people who sort of think, oh, I'd rather sit down and and not have a job if they could work. Um, So I think there is a sort of overall consistency. The reason why... Why fraud and and the, the, why there is that focus on fraud and why and it's not it's not new really. I mean, politicians have been focusing on fraud for a, for a very long time. It hasn't arisen with this with the welfare reform process in the last year. I think the reason why it is such a focus is that those cases, to wh- to whatever extent you think they're there, and I, honestly, I think it's very uncertain. Is the, is the truth of that? Those cases do really upset people, not just, you know, people sitting in Westminster worrying about taxpayers' money, but people down there on who mm. depend on the benefit the most. Those cases really anger people. I think part of the reason why uh, why there's, there's, there's also a very big media interest in it is that they, people know that there is something where... It's, it's natural really does justice, get, doesn't it? Get, it does, there's yeah. something where really, which really... But of course it also means that. that if you're someone who may well be reassessed in the future, you... you you see that the reason this is being done is because the government wants to um, try and locate fraudsters and you automatically think, well, I'm being lumped in the same category as these Mm. people and you can see why people will worry. Um, I mean, I'm interested in the phrase that's been used that the funding will be retained for those with the greatest need. Uh, Neil, what does the greatest need mean? What what does that criteria actually tell us? The the government haven't actually explained in detail what that might mean, but what they have said is that low-rate care DLA will disappear under the new benefit, personal dependence payment, and that's the bit that reaches six. 652,000 working age adults. What is it? Explain it. What is low rate care? Yeah, yeah. what does that entail? So, so, so um, the way disability living allowance is uh, assessed and then used is, is, is based on mobility and care needs currently. Uh, and there are lower and higher rates of mobility uh, payments based on your mobility needs as a disabled person. And uh, low, middle and high rate care payments based on your care needs, care and support needs. So practically, what things might I lose if I was dependent on uh, low rate if you, care? If you uh, lost um, low rate care, that's £19.55 a week Uh, and I think this this actually links into the work issue in particular because uh, and this is where there's a lot of confusion about DLA DLA is payable for disabled people in work it was meant to cover higher costs of living and if you're a disabled person in work your living costs are actually higher because you'll be doing more uh, travel to to and from work different clothes for work whatever it might be uh, work-based lunches work-based travel whatever Um, and it's this group of people who are telling us that were that now that now we know this rung of support is going to disappear under PIP personal dependence payment um, these people are saying well if I don't get the support I might not be able to afford to go into work and again the government is claiming that the reform is based on incentivizing work for disabled people and is actually going to pull away support that enables some disabled people to go into work so again we've we've asked the department from work and pensions to 
fully assess the proposals based on treasury contributions and loss from disabled people in work and we've been routinely ignored and it it comes back to this this idea that there's been a good consultation or a good engagement on this five and a half thousand people responded to the initial consultation there's been no change not a single measure that the government initially announced has changed well, I mean, the, the policy isn't finished. You know, the poli- this, this, we haven't had the final. The, the, the five and a half thousand people have commented final, on it so final far. Policy. Yeah, exactly. And the, 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 that that process isn't <coughs> complete. I think that the, uh, the the what the shift towards an impairment based based approach, and it, and what those impairments will be, how that test will function. I don't think it has been settled. I think that that is still a process which the government's looking to get right. And this is a change which is coming in 2013, 2014. And I think that there's, it's, it's, it's just really important that, uh, those, benef- that those benefits are you know, properly focused. But what is critical about this, as you're saying, you know, is, is there for people who are in work, is that the government's approach is that it remains uh, non-means tested and non-means tested. Therefore, it's not th- that that question of whether you're in work, what your income is, etc., isn't going to be applied. Which what, what, what's your definition of the greatest need? I mean, what what's the bottom line, and what should we be I, happy to pay for? I don't think I should be the person deciding what the greatest need is. You know, I don't. I, I'm not. I'm, I don't think that there's there's any sense. You know, me pretending I can give you a you know detailed description of what the greatest need is. I think. Uh, that those need those that I, I just do know that they, I think the best way to understand those needs is how are people impaired in their ability to work and live. I think doing it by conditions which are designed by which are designated by doctors for very different reasons for very different purposes uh, for their diagnostic and treatment. Uh, I think uh, duties. I think is is better. But what people have said to us is that just generally they get a sense that you know. That's the sort of society we are. They're never going to be left to starve. They're always going to have some kind of basic provision, but that anything other than that, they may well lose, and that for that them losing that will be really, really serious. And that it may be the difference between someone who's able to um, be looked after at home, but won't be able to go out because they'll lose the mobility allowance. So, I mean, when I put that question to you, I just wondered whether or not you think that if that was right, if that is the the, the state of affairs, no, I, would, would that I, be I, one I that think, you'd be prepared th- to countenance? No, no. I think I think that getting around is widely acknowledged as being, uh, you know, a, a very important need. I don't I don't think that that's that's where anyone's proposing to, to draw to draw the line. Uh, I don't think we're talking about survival here. And, fr- and frankly, I think obviously survival is something which other benefits are intended to cover. Disability living allowance is about quality of life. But uh, Neil, no, some no, people no, will lose their travel, their ability yeah. to travel. And, and actually, the initial assessment process designed by Department of Work and Pension would even exclude um, assessing how, say, people can move about within their own home. So it wouldn't even take into account some of the mobility needs, essential mobility needs of, of getting to and from the bathroom, to and from the kitchen. I mean, to there's, there's extensive stuff about mobility in the, in these. Terms. No, it was I mean, it was specifically talking. excluded, and it's one of the areas we responded to in the consultation. And, and and you're quite welcome to view that on, on our website. But I think this focus on greatest needs is unhelpful to some extent because what the government is choosing to ignore again is that DLA was introduced to cover. Uh, support for disabled people, higher costs of living. Now, some of that can be attached to those with the greatest needs, but that does actually ignore uh, the, the cost of living experienced by most disabled people, which are generally, it's, 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 uh, it's not the uh, most robust analysis, but are generally estimated to be 25% higher than, than, than anyone else, and that c- comes into utility bills, comes into uh, transport costs in particular, and equipment, of course. Um, and what what 
the risk in this scenario is if the government pulls the lowest bit of support because it thinks it's then focusing on people with greatest needs, it's generating need. And uh, the Dilnot Review of Social Care has said that were welfare to stay the same, welfare services and benefits to stay the same, uh, demand will be X. If if Dilnot is it, what Dilnot is. Um, requesting, if you like, uh, is that DLA stays the same because the low-rate care in particular prevents uh, people accessing social care and prevents people making demands of the NHS that are avoidable with some limited support. And I say limited because uh, DWP and the universities that have looked into this and other research shows quite clearly that DLA doesn't even meet the higher cost of living. It makes a contribution to it that families feel and disabled people feel is essential, is a lifeline of support, and without it they would be in very dire circumstances. Random, uh, Randeep, sorry, to, to talk to me about the um, politics here. Um, is this a tripwire for the government? We've seen other instances in which there's been uh, trouble coming down the track and they haven't quite seen it until, it, until it's hit them. Um, I think it's actually, a, I have to say, that for the leaderships of both parties, it is a worry. I know that the disability lobby have been very angry with, with the Labour Party and, and about disability and not really taking on as an issue with the Conservatives and all the Liberals in coalition. For the, for the coalition, I think the greater problem for them is that the identification of harming people who really can't defend themselves and it's very difficult to to politically organize on a great level uh, when you when you're bearing these conditions so I think that for them it is it is going to be an issue that's growing especially when you look at the figures the amount of I think scope produced figures showing that it's a completely disproportionate burden of cuts that are being produced nine for disabled people. It's nine, nine billion, nine billion isn't, isn't it? Because this is just, it's just, isn't just one group, is it? It cuts no. across all social classes as well. But I think it, it will at some point be difficult for the coalition because what it suggests, we know that disability is a function of an ageing society and actually there is a social gradient with that. So the poorest in our societies suffer more. So in effect, if you were to not tackle inequality, which is not what the government is interested in, it's interested in tackling fairness, you are basically saying to a lot of a lot, an ever-growing slice of our population that you're going to have to make some sort of uh, insurance-based system, you're going to start having to save in a big way. These are difficult things for any government to suggest to large parts of our voting population. OK, well, I'm going to have to stop you there because we're right out of time. and um, We've had our debate here in the studio, but obviously on Saturday it moves uh, onto the streets. My thanks to Randy Ramesh, Neil Coyle and Matthew Sinclair. The producer of this Guardian Focus podcast is Peter Sale. I'm Hugh Muir. Thank you for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.